Afro-Indigenous people are finding the language now to talk about themselves in a way that feels more real, more connected. Danse, hello, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm super excited to have Shanice here with me today. Shanice is an Afro-Indigenous fat femme who's fought for the advancement of Indigenous and racialized student rights within post-secondary institution and does consultations on curriculums and training around Black and Indigenous issues. Shanice is the founder of Ashkenan. Ashkenan <laughs> nonprofit <laughs> and the writer of the Nutmeg and Sage blog. I met Shanice well virtually through when we were both on the social together talking about toxic masculinity, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, and the two spirit crisis. And also, we are in conversation around anti blackness that existed within the Sephora campaign, which I'm sure we'll dive into later. <laughs> so, we have a little bit of history. Shanice, thank you so much for joining. If you just want to introduce yourself, however you introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So, Anim Bojo Bujo, Shanice Ndishnakas, and Dobo Dago Ndishnabemnang, Jajak Ndorem, Metia Nishnabe Makadeque, Toronto Dunjaba, Minwa Decatur Dunjaba, Dimension and Nakuya Potawatomi. So, hello, my name is Shanice Steele. I'm Afro Indigenous. My father is Afro Caribbean. He hails from Trinidad, but my family's originally from a very small island of 8,000 people. So, everyone knows everyone. And then my mom is Metia Nishnabe. I grew up in Toronto, but I spent my time, part of my time in Decatur, Illinois, which is the traditional territory of the Potawatomi people. And that's where I'm coming from today. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's such medicine to my ears when I hear other Indigenous folks speak their native language. And I know that we're going to be talking about like Indigenous futurism and like what we hope to see in the future. But I think it's just so important to know where we come from and the history that's happened here within Canada. And so I'm curious, can you give me the cliff note on Canada's history with Afro-Indigenous people? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of folks kind of have some misconceptions around when Black people came to Canada. But Black folks or folks of African descent have been on these lands for over 400 years. In particular, I think a story that we we talk about oftentimes in Canadian history but don't highlight enough uh, is the story of Matthew DaCosta, who was a indentured servant, if you want to call it that, on a ship, uh, one of Samuel de Champlain's ships, who came up the St. Lawrence River and actually spent a a lot of time in Mi'kmaqi territory and spoke the language um, and had a deep tie with the nation there and the communities there. And we don't talk about that relationship. Like it's it's very easy for us to be like, he's the first quote unquote free black man to be on these lands. But we never talk about that relationship that was built between him and the Mi'kmaq people. Uh, in the same way that we don't highlight George Bonga, who was a Anishinaabe and African-American man who was all throughout the prairies, um, who was an Afro-Indigenous person in the 1800s that had a deep history and connection to his nationhood as an Anishinaabe person. There's been a deep history of Afro-Indigenous identities existing on these lands, in particular on the East Coast, but across Canada for, again, the last 400 years. So I do want to talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, and that was the anti-Blackness that existed within the Sephora campaign that I was a part of. And I know listeners, maybe you didn't know, but Sephora released a campaign titled We Belong, and it had, I believe, seven 
indigenous influencers that were amplified that month. I was one of them, but Sephora totally missed the ball on uh, Afro-Indigenous representation, Black Native representation, fat, disabled. There was like a lot of people that were missing from that campaign. And there was a lot of conversations happening within our communities around anti-Blackness. And so Shanice, I know that it was a really big conversation and it still is, I find there's still like people that still talk about it. And so what was your take on the whole campaign and how are you feeling about it now that it's it's been like a year or so now? Yeah. So I think with the Sephora campaign, um, when it first dropped, like my first instinct, right, obviously was this is beautiful. Like this indigenous representation within the beauty market is so important. It's missing. Right. So instantly I'm like, it's visual stunning. Everyone looks beautiful, right? But then after I was like, oh, I didn't I didn't see any Afro-Indigenous folks. Like there was no one there. And then folks started to have conversations about it. And I think like the reason why it was so like obvious for Afro-Indigenous folks is also just because Sephora's had like a long history of anti-Blackness. Um, and in particular within their stores, the brands that they provide, the lack of like shades for darker skin folks, right? There's all of these aspects that have gone into a lot of Black folks' relationship with Sephora. And so when I think for us, when we saw this, we were like, okay, well, yet again, Afro-Indigenous folks are being left out. And it felt like, is this solely because of their Blackness? And again, in reference to how Sephora has treated folks of Black backgrounds, whether they're mixed, whether they're they're monoracially Black, right? And then I think also, like, when a lot of us were bringing up these concerns, it turned into this, like, pitting of Black folks and Afro-Indigenous folks against, like, what people were saying were fully Indigenous folks. And, like, there were folks who were mixed there. They just happened yeah. to be mixed with white, right? But there was, again, it was, like, this conversation of, like, Indigenous folks mixed with white being seen as fully Indigenous and Afro-Indigenous folks being seen as other. And that's been a lot of our experiences, right? And, again, it's not to say every community is like that. It's not to say every Afro-Indigenous person has been rejected by folks. It's just to say that it's a common enough thing that it felt hurtful. Folks were being like, well, why don't Black people just get their own campaign? And it was like, but we're not trying to separate ourselves from our nations. Like, we we are also Anishinaabe, Métis, Cree, whatever you are, right? And so I think that was the hard part of the conversation is that we were being seen as separate. And so hence the call out towards Sephora. And I think what was really important is that... So, a lot of us were having different conversations with folks. Like we talked, I talked with Scott, like folks were having conversations outside of that. And I think those were super important because I know myself and others included never wanted you all to feel like this was like an attack on you or to say that like you were in the wrong. I think again, it goes back to the fact that like you had said, a lot of folks haven't been around Afro-Indigenous folks before. And so you would enter into a room like that and not even know to say hey, I noticed there's no Afro-Indigenous people here. Unless you're in relationship a lot with someone from that background and that intersectionality, it's hard for you to bring it up in the room. In the same way as me as an able-bodied person, I sometimes I misstep and don't always include things that are fully accessible to people with disabilities, right? And again, that's on me, and I have to acknowledge that and do that, do that work. And so I think that's where it was important to have those conversations to not say that like you yourself, Shayla, are inherently anti-Black, but it's to say that like this is what was missing and the action in itself was anti-Black, not to say that you are anti-Black. 
There were some folks that were not receptive of that conversation. That was hard, but I think we started to see that conversation spread. So like res dogs were having a conversation about, you know, Afro-Indigenous representation, especially in a place like Oklahoma, right? Like there's so many Afro-Indigenous folks there. So what I think was really great about this is that the conversation began to spread in different places. So far, I wasn't great about it. But again, that just means that we have to keep having those conversations so that there always is a person in the room that can be like, oh, wait, this is what's missing. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, it's not to take away from the campaign. I think the campaign was absolutely stunning. It was beautiful. I've seen that it's gotten some award nominations. I think that's absolutely great. Again, it's representation is important no matter what. It just means next time we do better. Yeah. And I think uh, for me, it was like not taking it personally, really looking at the campaign as a whole and me now understanding that I should be asking more questions before saying yes to a campaign because I did not know who was even a part of it. I didn't even know who was missing until it came out. And so that really opened my eyes of like, okay, if we're trying to represent a community, let's make sure we're consulting with other folks from the community and not just having one person consult for the community itself. And so that really opened my eyes onto also it was the first time I ever had to post a public apology and like take a step back and really look at my own actions and reflect on my own behavior. And I think that was a really big lesson for me too, is like, okay, if we are taking up space, be ready to answer those questions or to take accountability when stuff like this happens. And so it was a really big learning lesson for me. And I also had the chance to, I think, get closer to other Afro-Indigenous kin and to also have actual conversations and communication offline, which which is what we should be about, is about creating that kinship and coming back to those relationships. So yeah, thank you so much, uh, Shanice, for sharing that. I know we could probably have a whole podcast on that (laughs) topic itself. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for for again talking about it. And I, I again, that public apology and being open to a conversation is definitely the most important part, right? So, yeah, I think it's it's important to to understand that and I definitely appreciate it and even having this conversation now, which for some folks might have been hard. Sometimes we make mistakes and being honest about that and again, doing better. The community I grew up in was predominantly white and my access to black people, to black culture, the term of Afro-Indigenous people actually didn't really like come into my existence until we started having those conversations because of what happened with the Sephora campaign. And so I think it's so important to know that you've been here longer than what history even tells. And then it I also thought about how, you know, when we learn about Indigenous people and Indigenous culture, oftentimes we're learning the history of Canadian law and the Canadian constitution. That doesn't include Afro-Indigenous people at all. Even when we look at how we dictate indigeneity, if we look at uh, status cards, Métis cards, you know, there's nothing that depicts how do you claim, like, what? who's an Afro-Indigenous person, who's a Black Native? Like, there's nothing really within the Canadian Constitution itself. And so when I think of how ignorant even myself and my family was, it's like, I'm so glad that we're having these conversations now. And I'm curious for you, like, have you been seeing a shift from when you grew up to the conversations that we're now having online? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think for a lot of people, the concept of Afro-Indigeneity is new, and in particular in Canada, because of the way in which even Indigenous, when we're talking about Indigenous history and we're talking about monolithic Indigenous people, right, that history has also been hidden. So how can you have a deeper intersectional conversation when we're not even having a conversation as a whole in general? I didn't use the term Afro-Indigenous until I was in my like mid to late 20s. That wasn't even a term that I knew within myself. I was I was just like, I'm Black and Native, and that's it. Like, I didn't really understand. And I think part of that was because of representation, is that we don't see a lot of that representation. Oftentimes, the conversation is centered around, well, oh, there's Black folks pretending to be Cherokee, or kind of like the, the Cherokee princess, which is something is, is also very prominent in the Black community as much as it is in the white community. But there's a different history around that. And, that, and it's because the Cherokee Nation had owned slaves, there's the Freedmen List, there's like a much deeper history there than a lot of people talk about. But again, that conversation was very centered around Black people being separate from Indigenous people. Instead of looking at kinship and the fact that there's been a lot of overlap in the way in which we talk about indigeneity as well. The first time I heard somebody talk about Black folks within an Indigenous context was when I was in university. I will say over the last few years, I've seen a lot more Afro-Indigenous folks take up space. And when I say take up space, I mean via representation, to be seen, to be heard. I know what it was like for me for the first time to see an Afro-Indigenous woman. There's a woman by the name of Tasha Beads. She's from Saskatchewan. She's Cree and uh, Bayesian from Barbados. The first time I saw, I walked into a space on campus and I saw her and she was a PhD candidate. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I can see myself being somebody who makes it, who escapes a lot of the things that I was dealing with even within my small network, seeing more representation, Tasha Spillett, right? There's there's Afro-Indigenous folks now that we're really seeing being vocal. So yeah, I think there's more of a conversation in the broader Indigenous community. And I think Afro-Indigenous people are finding the language now to talk about themselves in a way that feels more real, more connected. Mm. Yeah, I think language is so important because oftentimes I find there's not enough words within the English language to even describe our identities as Indigenous people. And so that brings me to my next question. You brought up the idea of representation. And I think representation has been talked a lot more within mainstream media, within the beauty industry the last couple of years. And I'm wondering, what is your take now? Like, do you find that representation is still just as important as it once was? Do you think that there has to be obviously further things happening that goes beyond just representation? Uh, What are your views on, yeah, Indigenous and Afro-Indigenous representation? right now? Yeah, so I think it's been amazing to see the amount of representation that we're seeing now with like more actors and actresses, models, right? Artists, like we're seeing this like huge expanse of representation or expansion of representation of Indigenous people and Afro-Indigenous people. I definitely think, of course, there's always more that we can do. And I think what's really important when we're talking about representation that we don't get into tokenism, like making sure that there are dark-skinned Afro-Indigenous people in the room, right? I'm a light-skinned person. Um, I'm still digestible within white gaze. So 
really creating that space for folks, right? Indigenous folks that are living with a disability. We need to see more representation around that. Fat Indigenous folks, more representation around that that isn't based in the, like, Indigenous auntie that doesn't really have any personality outside of being, com- like, comedic relief, right? Like, we, I want to see right. fat Indigenous women being loved and cared for and being the center of, of attention, right? Those kind of things. And then also, like, access. So we're having representation, right? We're seeing people, but is that changing folks' access to things? So, yeah, there might be more Indigenous folks on the screen, um, but are more Indigenous youth having access to acting classes? We're having more Indigenous artists. Are more Indigenous youth having access to music classes? Because I know for me, I loved playing the violin when I was younger. We just couldn't afford to continue it. So, again, when we're talking about representation, that's great. But are we creating the avenues for Indigenous people to also have access to get into those spaces? And I think like also having access behind the scenes of those spaces, because that's what's creating those stories. And that's what's shifting people's perceptions. And when you shift people's perceptions, you shift people's lives. And so, yeah, no, I think there needs to be a lot more done that's happening behind the scenes um, when it comes to representation and when it comes to storytelling. You've talked about how there is this over romanticization of the relationship between black and indigenous communities. So tell me more about what you mean by this and the state that it has left our world in. Yeah, so when I I always say like you can't kumbaya oppression and I think it's like really beautiful to talk about solidarity but sometimes folks think it's as easy as just throwing folks in a room and being like, hey, let's plan how we fight colonization, right? But the reality is, is that oftentimes there's deeper histories behind those relationships, right? So I had talked about, you know, the Cherokee Nation owning slaves. We can talk about the way in which Black folks were used to expand nations westward, right? So a great example in Ontario, for instance, in Canada, is the Oro Medante Black Settlement that was put in place in 1819. But you have to think about the fact that Anishinaabe people were removed from that area to create that settlement. And so oftentimes the Canadian government and the American government would use Black people in an attempt to displace others, right? So it wasn't the fact that Black folks came in and they were like, we're building the settlement, we're displacing Anishinaabe people. No, the government displaced Anishinaabe people, put black folks in there to create this settlement to claim land so that the U.S. wouldn't, right, it was right after the War of 1812, so that the U.S. wouldn't come back in and try to claim it. So you understand the history of that, but the thing is, is that we're not having conversations about some of the harm that could have been caused in that process. When we're talking about, like, black folks, what does it mean to find freedom on stolen land? Like, what does it mean when we've been used, like, without our consent to further colonization? So there might be some harm that's there. Again, in the same way that there's anti-blackness in the indigenous community, not at the fault of indigenous people, but through colonization, through residential schools, we have to address those that harm and those conversations before we just throw people in the room. And again, it's also understanding that the way in which we look at things might be different. So when there was protests in Victoria at the legislature, a lot of black women um, had felt that they were being regulated to cleaning duties. And as a black woman, right, oftentimes we are seen as the help. And so that can come across as microaggressions, whereas like indigenous women might have just seen it as like, here's an opportunity to help and not really thinking about the connotation of that. 
And so again, it's not intentional harm, but when we haven't talked about the history or sometimes even our own oppression at the hands of others and how that might affect how we're coming into spaces, it means that further harm might be caused. For me, when I say we romanticize relationships, it's very easy for us to say, yes, Black and Indigenous people were holding hands and we're fighting white supremacy and colonization, um, but what does it mean to unpack ourselves and our relationship before we even address what white supremacy has done? What would your advice be for Indigenous youth that are wanting to maybe unpack their anti-Blackness? Like, where where would one even begin? Something that I always tell people is to, like, start within. So start asking yourself questions. What is it that I know about the Black community? Is it solely based in what I've seen in TV? Is it based on interactions that I've had with folks? Is it entertainment? Is it music? Like, what is my relationship to Black people? What is my understanding of Black people? Then you need to unpack like your community's history with Black people. Have there been Afro-Indigenous folks in your community or Black folks in your city? I think the next step after that is to read and watch and learn. So something that anytime I don't know about something, I'm going to research, I'm going to read, I'm going to go on Google, I'm going to find as many articles as I can find. TikTok and Instagram, right? Twitter creates all of these opportunities for you to learn. So going on there and listening to folks um, share their stories. There's so many similarities um, between Black and Indigenous people and also just Indigenous and racialized people as a whole, right? There's so many similarities. And then trying to build relationships. I promise you there's going to be a Black person somewhere. It might be (laughs) rare. It might be hard to find. Again, it doesn't mean to go out and tokenize them, but like build that relationship. And if you don't see Black folks in your space, making sure that you're creating a space that they can access. So if there are Afro-Indigenous folks that may want to come home or may want to engage, that they know they can do so in a safe space. Because I've had a lot of Black folks ask, how do I support Indigenous people? But I'm a little bit afraid of the fact that they may have never seen a Black person before or there might be anti-Black racism that I have to deal with. And that's a reality in the same way Indigenous folks wanting to work with Black folks, and in particular Black immigrant folks, they might have never seen an Indigenous person before in their life, right? So it's really about, again, doing the work to create that space. But education is the first, first thing, right? Again, unpacking yourself, but then listening and learning. And we have such access to that now through social media and through our phones. But I do think it's access to education and also access to relationships and building stronger kinship with between Black and Indigenous folks. And like you said, like we don't want to romanticize um, this solidarity, but like how how do you want to see Indigenous people supporting Afro-Indigenous kin? Like what would you, what would your idea of like true solidarity and kinship, like what does that look like and what does that feel like? Like for you? Yeah, I think it's just providing the space for them to be themselves in their entirety. So not forcing or not making Afro-Indigenous folks feel like they have to leave their Blackness at the door, right? In the same way that like as an Afro-Indigenous person, I shouldn't have to leave my indigeneity at the door in spaces. Like I know I've been on panels during Black History Month and I'm like, do I introduce myself in the language? Like, is that something I should be doing? And it's not because anyone said anything to me, but it's because in different spaces and other instances, I've now started to like do that work on myself rather than folks causing that harm. Like I'm now second guessing myself. So creating the space for folks to be themselves in their entirety, using like affirming language. So, you know, there was a big conversation about how we refer to black people in indigenous languages, right? In Anishinaabemowin, Mukadewias, which is the term that was commonly used, which translates to like black or burnt meat, depending on the dialect. 
that was harmful. A lot of Afro-Indigenous folks were like, I don't actually like to be referred to as me. And so there was a conversation about how do we adjust the word, right? So I'm someone who identifies as a Mukadekwe, a Black woman. And so I just dropped the we-ass part. It was really beautiful during the Black Lives Matter movement. Indigenous folks were putting out Black Lives Matter in different Indigenous languages. Like that in itself creates that space, access to ceremony. And I think when you see someone who's being bullied, say something. And there was a, a person that I had worked with and they too had never really taken in Afro-Indigeneity until we had a conversation and they were like, oh yeah, there's a little Afro-Indigenous boy on my res and he gets bullied a lot, but like I didn't, really think about it in the aspect of his blackness. And I was like, that might be it. It could just be kids being kids. But at the end of the day, like as an Afro-Indigenous person, there's always going to feel like there's an element of like, it's because I'm black and I, because of my blackness. So calling it out when you see it, making sure that people know, right? Again, what languages to use, how to support folks. It's just really all about creating that space and that support. Yeah, you mentioned a few things that made me think of, well, you said calling out. And I oftentimes think that sometimes people can be a little nervous to call out someone online because they don't want to contribute to cancel culture or they don't want to contribute to, um, yeah, like cancel culture. And so I wonder what your ideas are around creating a safe space and holding people accountable. Like, how does that actually look? And is there ways to hold someone accountable without canceling them? Cancel culture is such an interesting thing that I think we're dealing with now. And I say it's interesting because there isn't actually any real accountability built into it. I always say we're born into an inherently anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic world. We're inherently born into that. All of us are unpacking and learning pretty much from the moment that we come out. So it's really important to create space and the time for people to learn and to correct themselves in, in some of the harmful actions that they're taking. So like allowing space at time, accountability teams are super important. So if someone has caused harm, and I'm, and I'm thinking on a larger scale, if someone has caused a lot of harm and you want them to be held accountable, creating account, an accountability team to like support them and to make sure that that work's actually being done is really important. Obviously, calling in versus calling out. So if you have a personal relationship with somebody, if it's somebody that like it could cause more harm to them by calling them out, like having a simple conversation with folks, I think is really important being just like, hey, this this hurt me and this is why. And I, I want to explain why. And these are the resources and like providing them with the opportunity. I think when you have a large corporation that has the money and the time to create diverse and intersectional spaces, but but doesn't, that's a time to call out. And then outside of that, again, giving time. But if you notice someone doesn't care, they doesn't, they don't want to put in the effort, right? I think in those instances, if you've called out and there's still no change, direct your energy into other things. Direct your energy into creating the space that they didn't provide. Because I think we've gotten into this place, especially around like, we have to decolonize spaces. Some spaces can't be decolonized and it's okay to acknowledge that creating the foundation for that space to be more equitable and safe, of course, mm -hmm. but moving on to create spaces that are in itself inherently decolonial. Because um, a lot of us get caught up in the like, I have to change this one system. And if it doesn't change, like, you know, you, you dedicate your whole life and at the end of it, you're drained, you're burnt out. And it might be an organization or a system that doesn't want to change. So redirecting that energy into things that actually support community. 
Yeah, I think that's so important because even my values have really shifted over the last couple of years because I was on that train of like, okay, I'm going to change the system within the system. And then you soon find out like, oh, wait, am I the only one here that's trying to change something within this um, organization, within this company, within this brand? And oftentimes you can feel incredibly isolated and people around you try to shift your values. And so I'm curious to know, like, what are the values that you stand by that make you continue to do this work each and every day? Like, what are your personal values that allow you to do the work that you currently do? Yeah, so there's a few of them. I think one is like to never work with an organization or a person that's like inherently any of the phobias. So homophobic, transphobic, you know, racist, any of those things. Like if I know that that is like what you are at your core, I'm not I'm not going to waste my time and my energy on that. Now, of course, people can always change, but I'm very much someone who's in the belief that like, you change when you want to change. And so if you haven't approached me in a real concrete and genuine way about change, I'm not going to waste my time because there will be organizations that reach out and they're like, we want you to come and do this work. And you know, it's not going to be applied. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to waste your time to do that. Right. So that's definitely one of them. Two is to make sure that I'm always cognizant of the space that I'm taking up. So if I feel that like there's an opportunity and I'm like, I've got a lot of bookings this month or I've done a lot on this topic or maybe I don't I'm not actually very well versed on this topic. And I think someone else should speak about it, like always passing the buck when I can pass the buck, always bringing people onto projects. So if I get a booking and they're paying me a lot of money and I'm like, well, I can easily bring on somebody to do this work or do that work. Like I'm going to try to spread the money as much as I can. So, again, it's like really about making sure the space that I take up is not overshadowing or taking away from others. And then I think the other one that's like super important is to make sure that I never lose sight of why I started doing the work that I'm doing. So I, I, I think oftentimes about like politics and how many people have we known that have gotten to politics that were like super great with their ideals and they've slowly started to compromise who they are or what they wanted. And again, it's to fit, they have to because it's to fit into a system that doesn't have room or space for their for their core ideals. And so I never want to do that. I never want to compromise myself for something else. And I've, I've been having a lot of conversations with friends lately because we've been talking about how like when folks are like, oh yeah, bad people will get will get their karma. And I'm like, but they haven't been getting their karma. And I can see how easy it is to like buy into, well, I'm going to start living that way because we live in a society that's based on capitalism, that's based on a lot of these harmful things. And it is hard constantly fighting against that. It's easy to be like, I'm just going to give in. And so it's like constantly reminding myself, why am I doing this? Have I lost my way? Is this something that actually is tied into my core values? Is this something that makes me feel good? I think the last one is like, will I be able to look my community in the face after this? When people ask me, you know, describe yourself, like what what are the important aspects of about you? My last thing that I always say and the biggest thing is that I am... I'm community. And so if I don't think that I can come back to my community and look them in the face and be proud of of what I've done, then I don't want to do it. I do think oftentimes that sometimes we can 
just inherently start to co-opt colonial practices and ideologies and ways of thinking. And so when you think of the term decolonization, how would you define that within your own, within your own words? For me, when I think of decolonization, it's like a way of being. Like I'm continuously decolonizing everything about myself. Even like down to my name, I remember when I first really got in touch with my like Métis and Anishinaabe side, you know, folks will be like, oh, like this is my Christian name or this is my English name. And and then they'll say, and then this is my, like my indigenous name or my Anishinaabe name or whatever nation you're from. And I found myself looking at my name Shanice as this like really colonial name. And then I started to unpack it because I was like, uh, like looking up the meaning of it. And I was looking at the history of how like this is a name that was created within the African-American community in the United States and was like built through not just oppression, but resiliency and resistance. And it means like the light of God. I assumed that this was a colonial name, right? And when we think about like how technically it's come out of colonialism, but it's come out of that resistance to colonialism. It's still a black name. And I think that's something that we have to work on is there's aspects of ourselves that we have inherently called colonial, um, but that's because we don't know the root words behind it, or we don't know the stories behind it or the teachings or the understanding, right? And so I think that's like a really big part of it is understanding that when we're decolonizing ourselves, it's really understanding that every single thing about us has been put through the colonial lens. And unfortunately, that means that it's even disconnected our relationship to ourselves. So something that I've like noticed with like the word quay in Anishinaabemowin, um, we say it means woman, but it actually means person who's constantly in transition. Even that, even in our languages, like we have to decolonize even the way we translate our languages into English that waters them down, that takes away the stories behind that, right? So decolonizing for me, it looks like decolonizing absolutely everything. When it comes to spaces, my idea of decolonizing spaces is no longer coming into like an institution like university, I remember when I was the anti-racism commissioner, I was like, I'm going to end racism and colonialism at Trent University. Like, I, <laughs> I'm going to do that. A lot of work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then you start to realize that, like, this is an inherently colonial institution. So how do I create then create decolonial spaces outside of this? So I think for me, when I'm thinking about decolonization, it's less about looking at, like, institutions and throwing a bunch of indigenous stuff into it or a bunch of black stuff in it or queer stuff in it. It's like, okay, this is the institution. How do we create spaces that feel decolonial? And it's really about redirecting my energy into those spaces. So decolonization to me looks like indigenous folks having spaces to actually be decolonial. And is that where you came up with your nonprofit? Like how did that come into into existence? Like where did that all stem from? Yeah, so I was really noticing that, and this and this was kind of like prior to, you know, 2020, where I really, for the first time, was seeing a lot of conversations around Black and Indigenous solidarity. But I had noticed that a lot of the conversation around reconciliation and around, like, solidarity and, like, building relationships in Canada for a lot of nonprofit organizations and just in general was centered around, like, white settlers or people of European descent and Indigenous people. 
And I was like, okay, well, where does that leave black folks? Where does that leave immigrants? Where does that leave refugees? Like folks from various different backgrounds that also are interacting with indigenous people. And so I wanted to start having conversations about building bridges and Ajganong means bridges in Anishinaabemowin. Um, I wanted to have conversations about building bridges between diverse backgrounds that weren't just centered around whiteness. And in particular, having conversations with youth. So I've done a lot of work within, you know, school boards and particularly the TDSB. And I found that teachers just couldn't afford to bring in guest speakers. They couldn't afford to have these diverse conversations. And then also oftentimes couldn't incorporate this into their curriculum in the ways that they wanted to. So I wanted to provide a space where teachers could book me for free to come in and talk to youth and It's been such a rewarding experience. Like, it's been amazing to hear how excited the youth get about activism. Um, Last year, I got to speak to this classroom, and we were talking about boil water advisories. And the kids were like, we want to start a campaign. Like, we're (laughs) going to figure this out. And I was just like, these are kids, you know, young kids in Toronto that oftentimes get left out of conversations because they're usually lower-income kids. Right. And they were like, I want to show up for indigenous communities. Like, how do I do this? And I think it's so important to include more youth in the conversation because like not to sound cheesy, they are the future. Right. Yeah. And it's like, if you're not including them from a young age in conversations around the about the world around them. It's hard for them to connect and it's hard. It's going to be harder for them when they get older to see other people as human. And it's a lot harder to convince a 35-year-old of something than it is of a five-year-old. Again, like, especially in rural communities, kids are not being heard. So it's just, yeah, really important to create that space. That was actually going to be my next question, was your advice for the younger generation that are wanting to support this land back movement, to support Indigenous rights, to support Afro-Indigenous rights? You know, what would your advice be for the younger generation, but also particularly people that are living within remote communities that may not have access to social media and to Wi-Fi? I also realize that it's a privilege for us to even be having this discussion right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, my advice for youth anywhere is really to like organize and you can do this through school put a club together put a land back club call it the land back club (laughs) right like find ways to create clubs at school for you to create this space there's always going to be especially for like kids that are going to like elementary school or middle school or high school there's always going to be a teacher who is going to go to bat for you You know, it might not be your teacher, but there will be a teacher at school that is willing to go to bat for you. So finding that teacher, right, or that admin person at school that can support you, but also your friends. And again, like as kids, I don't think we think about this a lot, but like asking when I was younger, I don't think I asked my friends a lot about what their dreams were. As a kid, like parents are constantly and teachers are constantly asking you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. But, like, we don't have those conversations with our friends when we're young. And, like, how do we create the space for us to, like, learn together to become those things, right? Mm. Like, how do we advocate for access to things at school? And then when we're talking about just in community in general, again, like, I don't know how many, like, band reps or, like, folks working in the band office or, like, folks working in um, services on reserves that I've talked to that are, like, We have the money, we have the space, we have the time, but like folks aren't showing up. And it's like, are you providing the space for the youth? Like, are you letting kids know like, 
hey, do you do you have an idea for programming? You know, or even kids being able to know that they can go to their band reps to be like, I'd really like this on the reserve. I or I'd going in even into town to find space for that, right? So again, it's about like organizing with your friends, finding your allies. Might be an elder in your community that's like, hey, folks can come and sit at my house every day after school in my living room and, and sit down and we can do teachings or we can plan together or we can just chat, relying on your friends and just like creating that space to have those conversations. Yeah, I'm just thinking uh, about contacting my van and it's so hard. I mean, like, I'm lucky if I get a, even a, a scene on my Facebook message. <laughs> And that's the thing, right? Again, it goes back to staff, like the staff and folks within those spaces to allow for that space to happen, right? So I always tell folks, are you accessible to community? Because you can't complain that folks aren't showing up if you're not accessible. If folks like, are you providing rides? Folks need to make sure that they're as accessible as possible. And if your spaces aren't accessible, then create your own accessible spaces, If we can all get together to hang out, then we can all get together to organize. You know what I mean? If we can all chill in the park after school, then we can definitely have a chat about land back and overthrowing the overthrowing the government. I'm gonna say that right? but like, you know, like I, I feel like we're already hanging out. So why not have these conversations, right? No, it's funny you bring up the ride thing. I, I think of my mom, actually. Um, she's Métis Loriolette. She would actually give, go give Native rides just to get to the workshops. And even having access to a ride, I mean, that's why I did all the things I did as a kid because my mom was driving me everywhere. And I think it's so important to recognize um, the Indigenous women within our lives. And this podcast is called Matriarch Movement. And so I'm curious to know, like, what matriarchs are you currently inspired by and how would you define the word or the term matriarchy, like what does that look like to you? Yeah, so the first thing that I always think about is like my mom. My mom was the first activist that I saw. And when I say my mom was an activist, it's not that she was taking to the streets, but we lived in a apartment building in Toronto, like a small one. And every holiday, my mom would cook like a big meal and put out tables in like the hallway outside of our apartment and just lay out the food and invite folks to come and eat. And there was, like, folks in there that, like, didn't have anybody. And I think when we think of, like, activism or, like, you know, powerful matriarchs, we're so quick to go to people who are in politics or who are doing, you know, that, like, on-the-street work, which is absolutely important. And, of course, it's still a powerful matriarch. But we forget the moms and the aunties that do the rides and provide the meals and, like, provide the spaces, you know, and... Everyone knew my mom was the person to call when they were in trouble. Like, if if you were getting harassed by the police, call my mom. She's going to show up, you know? So I think for me, that was my first, like, matriarch of, like, and, and seeing activism, like an Indigenous woman doing activism through food. When I'm like, oh, the powerful, like, in the politics, I think Nahani Fontaine is definitely another oh person <laughs> that I'm just like, is a powerhouse and continuously creates space for folks. And is also someone that, like, when folks are like, I was missing or I didn't see myself in this. She's quick to be like, okay, well, let's figure out how I see you in this. Like she's, she's someone who can take constructive criticism to create better spaces for folks, which I think is so important. So she's really taught me how to be humble and, and to take that criticism and then do the work. But yeah, I think those are the two matriarchs that I'm just like, have definitely taught me so much in different aspects of my life, right? Like both definitely community-based women, but go about it in, so, in like completely different ways. 
Another one is a woman by the name of Marianne Shoefly, who I'll say it every time saved my life. When I was 14 years old, I had been arrested for something and went through the Gladue process. And so they assigned traditional counseling for me um, through Native Child Services in Toronto. And Marianne was the first person outside of like my mom to be like, I see you. It's okay to be angry and it's okay to be sad and it's okay to feel everything that you're feeling about the life that you have been handed because of so many different things outside of your control. And, you know, she gave me access to ceremony. And so for me, like Marianne Shufly, I will always say is the the woman who, who saved my life. And I think when I think of a matriarch, to me, that is someone who allows others to be seen. When you think of Indigenous futurism, like wh- how does that look in your eyes? What do you hope for it to see in the future of, you know, even 2023? Yeah, it's funny. I was on a, a panel last week and this question was asked about like Black queer futures. And I'm like, this, this question is always asked. And my response, I think when I was younger, was like really different than what my response is now. And for me, like when I think of like, what is indigenous futurism, you know, or like an equitable future, any of those questions, it's just us existing, like living our lives and thriving and, you know, existing in ourselves and not having to fight racism and not having to worry about missing and murdered indigenous women and not have to worry about our rights being taken. And we're just living, like, I'm thinking, like, white rom-com. That's us. Like, we're just (laughs) existing and, like, living our lives. And, like, the pain that we deal with is regular human pain, like a heartbreak because you broke up or, you know, unfortunately a loved one's passed. But it's not, you know, the insurmountable pain that we face through oppression. Like, I just want us to, yeah, a white rom-com. I just want us to live and love (laughs) and laugh and all of those things. And I just... I just want us to exist and be happy. Like, I really, I I don't want to have to fight. I don't want there to be a single thing that I have to fight for or against. I just want to live. If we no longer have to fight and we can simply just exist, what are the things that we can create? What are the possibilities? Like, I can't even imagine possibilities right now because I'm so focused on, like, fighting I'm so focused on surviving that how can I how can I take the time like so for me it's like that future looks like a future where possibilities are endless because we have all of the energy and capacity to put it into that just existing but it does make me think of this quote that I saw earlier this week about how when we make decisions we should be making it from a place of having a regulated nervous system or else we're actually just going to be making decisions out of the survival state and the stress that we're in or the trauma responses and so i think of you know an indigenous future is us with like us a regulated nervous system where we don't have to always be fighting or resisting or putting our bodies through states of stress. And so I can't wait to see what you get up for the rest of 2023. How can everyone support the projects that you're working on, support your talks? Uh, What are you up to in 2023 and how can we support you? So I definitely think folks can support me by following me on social media. Instagram is where I am. So uh, I have a more of like a businessy account. So at Learn with Shanice. But to be honest, like I feel like my personal account has also blurred into that because I still post a lot of political stuff on there as well. So at Shanice Ann. And then folks can go to my website, ShaniceAnn.ca. It is where they can book me for consulting. 
what I'm going to be doing in 2023. So I'm actually going to be a part of a podcast um, with one of my friends from university, which like I'm super excited about. Um, she runs her own farm uh, in Six Nations. So, but we're doing a, pod, a podcast called Revitalizing Our Sustenance. And it's all, it's going to be all about indigenous food systems in relation to indigenous sports and sports in general. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to be bringing the equitable lens into that conversation. So I'm super excited for that so folks can check out um i'll be letting folks know on my instagram when that will be dropping so folks can just look out on my instagram account to see what else i'm i'm doing but it's definitely going to be i think how i'm feeling is going to be a year of like a lot of growth in the conversations that i'm having so i'm super excited for that and yeah folks can book me reach out to me whatever it is um but i'm always interested in building more community I'm super excited for you. I already can feel the good energy and the good medicine that will be coming from those conversations. Well, thank you so much, Shanice, for, for sharing your story, for sharing your good medicine. Make sure you follow her on Instagram. Also check out her website. Hire her for the talks, all the things. Thank you so much. Hi, hi. Thank you, hi hi, for listening to the show. If you like the podcast, check your podcast app now to make sure you're subscribed. I'm Shayla Olette Stonechild. You can find me along with more info on Matriarch Movement on Instagram at Shayla0H. And my podcast producer is Katie Lore, and I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>